0: Secret
1: Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 135. Today, I love all the topics that we do, but interestingly, I really want to get into this uh, today. We are talking about the British Film Institute Sight and Sound Poll, which has really been, in a lot of ways, a sort of barometer that many people who are movie lovers, movie aficionados really go to, uh, more so than other polls, as where cinema is. And every 10 years, the Sight and Sound poll comes out for the top 10 movies of all time. Now, that's voted on by critics and by directors, and the BFI separates that out. So it shows you the critics' top 10, and the filmmakers' top 10. And I do think it's important here at the head to say we're going to be talking about Jean Dielman, the 1975 Belgian movie by filmmaker Chantal Ackerman, which shocked everybody by becoming the number one movie of all time on the 2022. But that was for critics. In terms of the filmmakers' number one, Uh, I believe it was 2001. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, 2001.
1: Nevertheless, these polls are fascinating to people and people like to see what individual critics and filmmakers, what their top tens are. For instance, Martin Scorsese submitted, Edgar Wright uh, submitted, Wes Anderson submitted, but he only did the top 10 French films because he's living in France. But anyway, it's interesting to look what people put on their lists what wins and then it gets a debate going a conversation going and we're going to have that conversation here so we're going to talk about John Dealman, which we all watched i am proud to say and then we're going to talk about the poll in general and then we're going to talk about our own top 10s who is with us today oh hey every
0: oh i did it again i had i had a break i could have done it
2: hey it's daniel hey gamers it's me Connor Lloyd Cruz the people's champion once more joined by the director of Sight and Sound's 2032 top film, Edwin Gomez. The Last of the Greats.
3: Yeah, I know. I know. Last of the Greats coming soon to Theater New You. But uh, hello, America. Not looking forward for this podcast because, one, it was a waste of three hours, and I have something to say with those BFI bastards with their sight and sound crap as soon as we get into this sucker. Got a few things I want to, I want to say to those sons of bitches. So, nice. you know.
0: I'm excited for that.
3: I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm, I let the hate
0: flow through you. Yeah, we need that. We can't just have universal agreement. There's no
3: going go, to be some curse words. Oh, man. Don't be the Darth
1: Vader and Emperor to Edwin's worst cinema instinct.
2: I almost beforehand was going to say, like, I'm, I am I'm want to pre-apologize to Daniel and Craig because I feel like I'm going to... I wasn't mad mad, but I was like the most oh, I get yelled it. in the shower in a while.
1: And I am Craig Hamill, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It is wonderful to have everybody here with us. By the time that you hear this podcast tonight we are going to finish up our Spike Jones series with Where the Wild Things Are and Her we know Her is on 35mm for sure in fact I just received it so the print is in the booth and we believe Where the Wild Things Are is going to be 35 as well then actually uh, you don't know this yet but it just got confirmed Saturday at 2pm we are going to do a Take a Chance cinema on a movie I love but it's at 2pm because we actually have somebody running us out that night for their film premiere but at 2pm We're showing a movie that I love, and I guess we're going to have to get into this, you know, we will across the year. It's an ongoing conversation. But we're showing a 35 millimeter print of Roman Polanski's debut movie, Knife in the Water, which uh, I think is an incredible movie. If you've never seen Knife in the Water, it is a movie with just three characters. It's a very simple plot. A hitchhiker hitchhikes with a husband and wife, and they're going to take an afternoon boat ride on their boat, and they basically invite him onto the boat. Polanski gets the maximum amount of psychological and sexual tension out of this very simple premise, and it really was an inspiration to me on what you could do if you were a very creative movie maker. Three people. He had a boat. You watch it and it's stunning. And it's it's a, a classic of Polish cinema. I actually, uh, I got a scholarship writing a paper about this to go to USC. I wrote about Knife in the Water, Kiszlowski's Decalogue and Camera Buff, and Andrzej Wajda's Canal in A Generation. And the Polish embassy gave me a, a scholarship, uh, which I was really honored to get. And I did an interview on it. And I'm a big fan of Polish cinema. If you've never seen this movie, we're showing it on 35. And then next week, on Wednesday, we open up our The Heart Want series, our month-long Valentine's Day movies. Our idea in February is that you should be able to look at almost any day and go like, that's going to be my date night. Oh. Or I'm going to go and see if I meet people I like. And we are opening with two movies I think are incredible in the last five years. Now it would be seven years, I guess, technically. Uh, we are going to do Moonlight, uh, which won Best Picture in 2016. I think it, it totally an incredible picture. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Sciamma's uh, 2019 movie. And then Thursday, birthday boy Daniel Ott will be joining us as we screen a 35mm print of a movie I love as well. Tomas Alfredson's uh, adaptation of the Jean le Carré novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, starring an incredible Gary Oldman. And really just a bang. I mean, that cast, it's crazy when you think about that cast. Gary Oldman, Tom Hardy, Benedict Cumberpatch, Colin Firth, Mark Strong. And it was shot by incredible uh, cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema. Uh, We're showing it on 35. Uh, Daniel, thank you for picking that movie. And I think
2: in a month we're going to do a podcast about it and... Spy movies that aren't Bond.
1: So join us for that podcast. And then uh, to let you know about some other events that we are about to announce, but we haven't announced yet, that I am very excited about, uh, we are going to be doing uh, in March, which is March Musical Madness, we are doing a double bill of Spike Lee's School Days and Eddie Murphy's Harlem Nights.
3: Oh! Ah, Yes! Harlem Nights, yeah, I'm not too crazy on School Days. Well, I'm looking forward to that one.
1: Also, finally I captured the White Whale... And we are going to do uh, the Coen Brothers' *Inside Lou and Davis*, which we are going to pair with uh, an amazing documentary from the '60s about Bob Dylan. Oh. D.A. Pennebaker's *Don't Look Back*, nice, uh, which is actually really important if to fully appreciate what the Coens are talking about in *Inside Lou and Davis*. Uh, we are also doing *Purple Rain* and *Under the Cherry Moon* as a double bill, oh, and we are I- also doing, I think, on 35, Bob Fosse's *Cabaret* and *All That Jazz*. And I even have uh, a little more to announce, but I'm. To leave it there oh you suck come on we are going all out under the cherry moon no but it's interesting you look at it, everyone should know that under the cherry moon is not considered a great film nevertheless it was shot by michael ballhouse in 35 millimeter uh, in black and white and it contains some of prince's greatest songs including kiss i mean it's all the that the music song. that's on his album parade and so you get to hear prince just banging out these bangers. And we got Purple Rain. So, just, you know,
3: whatever. Just Purple you Rain, I'm going to see. Under the cherry moon sucks. Why don't you calm down? I am calm. You took a chill pill. You took a chill pill, Dan? I have.
0: I had my Adderall this morning. Uh, so, there you go.
3: <laughs> we're
1: already pre gaming. We're tailgating for the debate that's about to happen. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. And there you go. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this uh, since uh, we brainstormed this topic about a month ago. Not because I thought you all were going to love John Dielman. This is going to get, I hope, a really interesting debate going about this aspect of film culture, which is that it's not just sight and sound, but AFI has a top AFI 100. AFI puts out all these lists. There's Empire Magazine. They put out a bunch of lists. IMDb. Has it, you know, Metacritic, top 10 New York critics? This is something, by the way, that's been going on probably since the Greeks, since Aeschylus 2,000 years ago dropped, you know, the second play in his Oresteia, and all the Greek critics came out of the Parthenon or whatever, and they're like, well, I didn't think it was as good as Agamemnon, blah, 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 and then, you know, (laughs)
0: like, whatever.
1: And then the Greeks all stood on some corner in Athens and said, here are my top five plays of whatever they called that time ancient
2: period. greek Fraser and niles <laughs> totally whatever it was <laughs> this, this is maybe a little gimmicky and i think we're too late to do it now but i kind of wish we had before we did this we had made all of us guess what the others would have thought about this <laughs> like oh, about john dealman thumbs up thumbs down because i think we would have like 100 percent of it i think we all would have nailed it
1: <laughs> i feel like as we said the BFI sight and sound poll really in many ways has been the gold standard for a lot of filmmakers and critics as the aggregator of, where the film dialogue is every 10 years. It, it always happens on the twos. So the last uh, 30 years, 1992, 2002, 2012, 2022. And uh, if we're still going in 2032 as Connor animated, we'll, we'll see where our heads are at. Everybody was blown away and it immediately set the Twitterverse and the cinema sort of online-averse on fire. When Jean Dielman, the 1975 Chantal Ackerman movie she made in Brussels, a three-hour and 21-minute movie about a single mother who's a housewife, who's middle-aged, in uh, Brussels, because really the full title of the movie is Jean Dielman, and then it's the address she lives on.
2: Jean Dielman, 23, quoi du Commerce. 1080 Brussels.
1: Literally her address, if you were to send her a letter, which actually plays an important part in the movie, we can get into. And for three hours and 20 minutes, we see three days in the life of Jean Dielman. She does almost the exact same thing every day. And the shots go on for a very long time. And the only thing that we can tell that is out of what we would call the norm is that she appears to be making money as a prostitute uh, when her son is not home. She has one John a day, and that John shows up while she's making dinner. Uh, she sleeps with that John, the John leaves, and then her son comes home. And other than that, basically what she does could be what, what many people do day to day. And for three hours and 10 minutes, you basically watch the same thing, although you sense in the third day something's going on with John Deal mentally. And not to get too specific, but
2: it's three days, but it's, it's about 48 hours. There's an action on day one that starts the movie and the movie ends with that same action on day three. So we're seeing a little more than two full days. So we're seeing like the latter half of day one, all of day two, the first half of day three.
1: Point well taken. 48 hours in the life of uh, Jean dealman And I we, we just might as well get it out of the way now. And then the movie ends uh, with uh, for the first time we see her having sex. Uh, with one of her Johns, she's clearly we've seen in this third day, something's off with her. And then she takes some scissors that she had used to open up a gift and she stabs him in the neck. And then she sits down at the table and we see her bloody as uh, day turns into night and some unexplainable blue light, uh, shines on her face. Then the movie cuts to credits. And this was the movie named the number one movie of all time, displacing Citizen Kane and vertigo and it caused a lot of people to erupt either excitedly
0: or against it or somewhere in the middle. I should, a little bit of context. I graduated high school in 2008 and I was applying to film schools and I was, I was visiting film schools and I had a panic about film school as a concept. And I ended up taking a scholarship for two years to a community college in my hometown because I was like, I haven't seen enough movies. I'm going to get Left out of film school. And so I got the Sight and Sounds Top 100 from 2002 at the time. And for those two years, I went through basically everything out of fear, to be clear. And then I got to film school and was both relieved and humbled to learn that like eight out of 50 people in class's favorite director at the time was like Tim Burton. And I love that because it's honest and pure, but I realized I had become the thing I was afraid of, which was like someone who had gone a little too far to make sure that they knew like the intricacies. But it was the same thing as as someone with my film education was mostly in the limited theaters, had available to me in Oklahoma, and the internet was like the big, the library to learn things from. Became aware of things like Jean Dillman. I had watched this When I was in high school and it was a struggle in high school, I was vexed by this. Let's just say again to the audience, three hours and 21 minutes. It's the perfect way, I think, to take it in first, because this time around, I ended up watching it two days in a row, because when I rewatched it, I watched it in chunks. I would take a break and I realized it's not how this works. Like the way that this thing is structured and the way that it pays itself off is you have to, the tedium of it is part of it and you have to sit with it for the full thing. Your bladder suffering aside, because I think as the movie, as the film rolls through the like, I, I think intentionally sometimes boring nature of it, it becomes um, hypnotic a little bit. You're kind of in in sync, and so these things that are happening, you're like, okay, I know where we're at in the day now because I've seen this before. This happens. This happens, and everything is built on the crux of of subtlety because. There's no stakes. There's no, like, traditional story elements of plotting. It's strictly character, and and so much of the character is is without dialogue. Uh, And these big, unbroken takes that are beautifully framed. I think you watch it with... When I was a teenager, I watched it with the implication that everything was insignificant. And then rewatching it now, I realize the insignificance of it puts you in a comfort level that as you build into things, there are moments, like when she drops the potato, that become the third-act battle of a blockbuster. Because it's such a jarring... Like, wait, this is wrong. That I think is such a weird thing to capture because if you if you've never seen it and you're listening to me explain it, you're like, that sounds awful. And maybe it is. I, I think it's it's bizarre. But I was very taken by this. I watched it the second time with like headphones on, which is not something I usually do. I usually do like a living room thing, but I wanted to like no distractions. Audibly, it's pouring in LA, and it was like the perfect sort of like be inside. I ended up I, I really loved it as a function of what what movies are this is sort of the perfect example of like how would you replicate this in another format it's such a specific type of creation taking advantage of, of moving picture and then I noted a thing that really freaked me out which was that um, the director she was 25 when she made this. And that Orson Wells age, Citizen King. Hurts my brain, yeah. I, I would imagine it's you know, it's met with it's pretension, but it's 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 bold and I, I wrote that it's such a confident thing to make. Like how did this get funded? How do you pitch this? Look at Edwin's distant look right now. Where do you think Edwin <laughs> is right now? Watching Shaw Brothers, probably. My big takeaway that we can, as we talk about it, was I I think it's just like the most beautiful portrait of like lonely humanity and sort of the day-to-day that it's boring because why would you want to live that life? Like a life that sort of, it seems forced upon you, you're required, gender roles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I think has a lot of conversation around it. But that's that's my take. I'll start with a a positive, a nice positive spin.
3: So... I started the movie at
0: 1.20. 1.20 in the morning.
3: Yeah, 1.20 in the morning. Stopped at 27 minutes because I said to myself, why the hell am I doing this? Stopped it. Put on another movie. <laughs> I watched Barbershop 2, Back at Business. And then by the next day, started watching it again. I probably got five minutes saying, like, it's still the same crap. And then I switched to another movie. Watched Life right after that. And um, I finished it last night. I was not impressed by it. I was not impressed by it at all. I hated every minute of it. It's boring. Long takes. There's just seeing a person do the same thing every day by the last day until she kills that dude. Like, oh, this is like the big thing we're waiting for. She just stabs him and then goes in the dining room and just sits there and then credits. Like, no, 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 no. You you know what's better than moving to that? Where it's like just in one sitting – and like doing something, my dinner with Andre. See, at least that has purpose, that has storytelling, that has people conversation. But this is just ah, you know what? I, BFI. Sight and sound, that should not have been number one. It's either could have been Citizen Kane or 2001. Me personally, it should have been 2001. I don't know. I'm just off with the whole god system. Well, Edwin- I think you have
0: to pick like the thousands and thousands of people who voted and, and give them a, a salute, a one finger salute. Yeah,
1: I was about to say, Edwin, it-, it probably is important to remember that when you say F, B, F, I, have sight, and sound, it's actually an aggregate of filmmakers that include filmmakers like Richard Linklater and Edgar Wright and Martin Scorsese and Wes Anderson, and then critics from all over the world. And I think between 2012 and 2022, they definitely expanded the people who voted in it. I think that's an important thing, but it's not a monolithic thing. It's actually not like five dudes that run the BFI or whoever that were like, this is it. It was really an aggregate of all these people.
2: Should be noted, I was gonna mention this earlier, That while 2001 did win the director's poll, Gene Dealman was at number four on the director's poll, I think tied with Tokyo Story.
3: Well, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, for a three hour movie about a lady just doing her ordinary thing, just no, that's just dumb. I, I find it dumb and, and, and boring, and I don't know how to explain it. It just, I hated every minute of that movie. I wanted to stop so bad, but no, if I didn't, some people will get freaking mad for me not finishing the damn movie, but I did. I finished it, and I hated it. I hated it.
1: Thank you for finishing it.
3: No, don't thank me. Don't thank me. How do you want to start in the beginning with? I,
1: Next is Bella I, Satan Tango.
3: I'm not watching that. I'm not watching that. That I could be off the podcast for I am not watching that. Seven and a half hours. No, no, no. You can you have that movie. I'm not doing it. It opens no.
1: with a 10-minute shot of cows.
3: Yeah, I know. No,
2: no. I think I might I might have to push back on that one. I, <laughs> I You just described that. Um, Connor. Connor. You know, I... I I've actually really been struggling with what I was going to say about this movie. I think I find a lot of it admirable and interesting. I think it's intellectually certainly interesting. I think, you know, on a whatever you want to call it ethical, I don't know if political is the right word, but level, I'm super cool with like the expansion of this poll. I guess I don't really care about this kind of stuff because it's just this isn't really where I'm at. There's like some overlap for sure. Like I look at the sight and sound list, there's a good 10th of the movies that are also favorites of mine. And then there's a good another 10th that are movies that I think are really good. And then there's a bunch of stuff that I think is like just not for me kind of boring, but that I get, you know, like like I was I was thinking about that a lot, too, about movies that I don't like, but I get don't like is maybe the wrong word, like, no, I follow you persona or something is a movie like I get it. I totally get it. And I will say Gene Dielman does make me appreciate that kind of stuff more where I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I get Persona. Like, I get it 100%. If someone's like, that's my favorite movie, I'm like, you know what? Hell yeah, bro. But that's in her, but Gene Dealman, no. I, yeah, Gene Dealman pushes up up against the edges if i was able to separate myself a little bit from it almost as like an art exhibit thing i think it is kind of interesting if i went to and i there was like an art exhibit and it was a literal real-time 24-hour thing about this woman and just showing like the monotony of her like daily rituals i think there is would be something interesting there i think in some ways the fact that it does have this narrative makes it (laughs) More like annoying in a way to me where it's clearly trying to tell a narrative in its way and it's very restrained way, and I just find it frustrating that it is so oblique. And everybody keeps talking about this potato drop. When does she drop a potato? She drops a spoon, (laughs) she drops a brush, she burns the potatoes and throws them out. She opens the bag and there's one potato in it. When does she drop a potato? And she's peeling them. She doesn't drop a potato when she's peeling them.
3: During my movie watching I was so not paying attention to it at all because I knew it was going to be the same thing over and over again. So I didn't care where the potato dropped. I just wasn't paying attention to that damn movie at all. I'm going
2: to find... Everybody keeps talking online about this... (laughs) This mother effing potato dropping. (laughs) Potato gate. I don't remember a GD potato dropping the whole effing movie.
1: Everyone's gaslighting you,
2: Connor. I feel like it. This is really, you know, God gives his greatest battles to his strongest soldiers. And this is really pushing (laughs) my resolution from last episode about not assuming the worst of people, this movie. To back up for one more second, if I'm being really completely emotionally honest... Oh, yeah, yeah, we got to. We got to. We owe the audience that. Then, like, fine. I don't care. (laughs) Like, if this is a movie you love, fine. I don't actually have a problem with it. If you're going to say that this is a movie you think is great that does all these things for you. That's totally fine. I, again, I can sort of intellectualize it a little bit, but that's not that fun. And so I, ha- I do have some kind of like dunks on it um, <laughs> that I was kind of amusing myself while, while watching. One is, I don't know if this is like a French thing or a 50 years ago thing, but the conversation with the kid where he's like, hey mom, what was
1: dad like like what was him like stabbing oh yeah yeah the second saver i i made a note on that conversation too where just so the audience knows each night her son comes home and on the second night they have a conversation and the son wants to talk about sex and she is made very uncomfortable about it and the son persists in wanting to talk about sex in a very strange way.
2: I I don't know. I, it was one of those things that kind of like broke the illusion of like, Oh, totally.
1: I made the note too. No, no mother and son would have a conversation like that.
2: Like I said, I can almost respect it if it was like totally completely real, real, you know what I mean? Like, Oh no,
1: you, I felt the director's hand completely there. I was like, these are two sentences in a thesis. Not two characters in the real world. My
2: most positive aspect of it, and like, I don't mean this in a, like, oh, it can put you to sleep sort of way, but there is kind of a pleasant, like, ASMR vibe (laughs) about about a lot of the movie. About, like, her when
0: she's, like, cleaning dishes and stuff. You should create some Gene Dealman TikTok ASMR clips. It's the way I feel about, like, watching basketball. Like, the squeaky shoes make me so sleepy.
2: There's something about the regimen that I actually, I know that, like, the point of the movie, I guess, is that she goes, like, insane because of this regimen that she has, but like, there's like something kind of pleasant about it to a certain degree, you know? I don't know what it is. Maybe my mind is just so like all over the place. I, the monotony thing, I get it. It just feels like a bit, you know, to a certain degree, almost in the way that like a Serbian film, which I haven't seen, is like I a bit seen where either, it's. Yeah.
1: I, I didn't watch didn't it
2: where it's like this movie that's like this hyper disgusting, hyper graphic thing on purpose as a way to like goof with you. I can like that at times. Like I love in Twin Peaks, the return when there's that three minute shot of
1: gold shovels.
2: Yeah. Um, it's used in a kind of a uh, different way there. I guess it's, there's something that feels punishing about this vindictive. I she's she, she used to get like a hobby. Honestly, that was like a big <laughs> thing that I was thinking a lot during this movie is like, she really Painting miniatures. I don't know something cheap. Obviously, like I get it. But
0: the sadness seems to be that there's no time for it. But she does have time. She oh, no, makes there, potatoes there's, twice. No, there's, there's time for
2: there's it. There's implications of time. I guess
0: post murder, she could have done something.
2: This
1: is forty. This is forty eight hours. <laughs> she discovered her hobby. She's like, oh, if I had only discovered this thirty minutes earlier.
2: We <laughs> see three and a half hours of her forty eight hours, which, if you do the math and if you're generous about how much she's sleeping, is about we're seeing one tenth of that time. What's she doing the rest of that time? I mean, it can't be that far to walk around. This is one of those cities. She's supposed to be so lonely. And like the first time she goes out, someone like introduces herself and wants to have tea with her. Like it
0: never happens to me. She gets great service at everywhere she goes. Connor, to speak (laughs) to your ASMR point, because like ASMR videos are pretty huge with the younger generations. Do you think they might actively pick up and enjoy this with that sort of mindset of they love this type of
2: stuff? There's like a couple of scenes. Like I'm looking now, I'm like scrolling through the movie. Um, The scene where she's like prepping the veal. There's something about that where it's like, I get this. I don't necessarily know if I think it has anything to do with what I like about film and movies. Um, I got excited. There was a boom mic in one shot. I thought that was probably the most excited I actually got the whole movie. And I thought if they really wanted to make this true to life, they should, sh- should take a big dump at one point, like in dumb and dumber like
0: legs off the ground.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I guess my last point is, and again, I I, what I was talking about last episode, not assuming other people. The other big thing I thought about a lot during this movie is that runner in uh Jeremy Saunier's green room from a couple of years ago. If people don't know, green room is about this punk band who get caught in this Nazi, uh, club and have to fight their way out and at the beginning of the movie they're interviewed by this magazine and they're asked what their favorite bands are and they give all these really cool punk answers uh like obscure stuff and then once you know the s hits the fan they start getting hurt and stuff they start admitting to each other in times of crisis that you know they actually their favorite bands are like prince and elton john and abba or whatever and it's it is one of those things where this oh, does
1: kind of yeah, that's a really interesting point, this
2: kind of pushes me to that edge where it's like, I respect this, I get it, but i some- I just don't again i that negative negativity bias. I'm just like there's no way someone ever' like, You gotta watch this, you know what I mean, like <laughs> let's put this on um it's more interesting as an idea than it is, I think like anything I recognize as being what excites me about filmmaking. There's some technical abstractness to it, but even then there's stuff that's like older that I think like has that stuff in it. So I remember you were talking with Edwin about Assault on Precinct 13, which he loved in Rio Bravo. I don't think that there's a lot of stuff that I love that is antecedent to this movie you know what i mean like i think a lot of the stuff that this has influenced is not necessarily the stuff that i like anyways and so i do love stuff where there's like that process people working on things i think that's interesting but i think you can see that in earlier stuff like a man escaped or whatever that i think is kind of its own path i don't necessarily think that no country for old men like went through Gene dealman to get to the aesthetics that it's on and so like i, I don't know i just don't, i just want get it I, I feel very distant from it and the decision for it to be recognized as such but i'm not like that mad about it because
1: who cares i think you bring up a really key point which was why i was looking forward to this conversation which is gene dealman is not a consensus movie it may be a consensus movie among a subset of movie lovers but it's not a movie like you said connor if people said my favorite movie was godfather you know whether you like godfather or not people all over the movie spectrum will go, I get that. Yeah, I get it. But if you say Gene Dealman, it's actually intentionally going to alienate at least 25 to 33%, probably more. I mean, if we're being really trying to be intellectually rigorous, which I think we should, I think that over half the people who see Gene Dealman would probably not be into Gene Dealman.
2: And I think especially when you broaden it out from sort of the circles we run in, which are sort of cine-easts, and widen it out to the general movie-going audience.
1: That's what I'm saying. When you move outside of the rarefied air of people voting in the sight and sound pool, and you go to everybody who says they love movies, if you go to everybody who says they love movies and you show them Gene Dealman, I'm sure there'd be a huge plurality of people who, who dug it, you know, twenty to thirty mm. percent of people saw it would be like I was but I think you'd probably get I would wager over fifty percent of people would be like, I no, that's not even a movie. <laughs> what was that? Um despite everything I was just saying, I loved Jean Dealman. And I have to I have to say that I didn't know what I was in for. I was on its wavelength immediately. And I thought this is really interesting. I thought the way that she shot the movie, the camera never moved, the way that she repeated shots I thought Chantelle Ackerman's formal strategy was fascinating because as Daniel said, when something goes off, like when she picked up that baby in the third day, I was like, oh no, yeah. oh no. Yeah, so what are you, you... going to
0: shake this baby?
1: Yeah. What Like, yeah. what's going to, because she watches a baby for five minutes every day. I actually got nervous when she left the baby alone and she went into the kitchen. I was like, why are you leaving the baby alone on the table? You should put that baby down on the ground. She raised questions that I thought was really interesting. Like, what is this blue light? Did she ever answer what that blue light is? I just assumed it was a metro or something outside the window, but did she ever answer what the blue light was that was coming into the apartment? I don't think so. Right, so this is a non-diegetic blue shimmering light that could be just Godardian and meta instead of real. I thought that was interesting. I did know on the third day, I was like, "Up, oh, she's gonna kill someone. <laughs> so in a weird way, I actually knew how the movie was gonna end even before it ended. And so when she stabbed the John, I wasn't like, what? I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of saw that coming. She's going to stab someone. I do think it's a great movie. But I do want to say that you have to like movies like Rainer Werner Fassbender movies and Jean-Luc Godard movies. And actually, I did a little research into her. It's no surprise that one of the people most influenced by her is Austrian filmmaker Michael Haneke, who did movies like The Piano Teacher and The White Ribbon and Cachet and Funny Games. Because his movies also traffic in 99% banality for a moment of shot. In fact, it, it, you could put Gene Dealman and Piano Teacher as a double bill, and you could easily see where the Piano Teacher with Isabelle Huppert came from. It came from Gene Dealman. I didn't know that. I didn't put together that Hanukkah was influenced by Chantal Ackerman. And I love Michael Hanukkah, by the way. But I also know that Michael Hanukkah is not for everybody. He's a kind of confrontational cinema that you you like or you 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 don't like. Connor, I want to go to you. I'm not trying to have it both ways. I want to be very clear. I really like Jean Dielman. I think I, I think Jean Dielman is a, a classic. Uh now would I put it would I put it in my top ten? No. Would I put it in my top fifty? I don't know. Would I put it maybe in my top hundred or top two hundred? I very well might. So that's sort of where I fall on that because I was fascinated by it.
2: Daniel, we've had this conversation that your favorite movies aren't necessarily movies that you want to replicate and do movies yeah. like. And I'm I'm not like that. All my favorite movies are movies that I would like like to make something like that. There's
0: such an uh, an aura around things like this. Anything that is the best is just right. Because it. I think it makes you feel one way that if, if this isn't your jam in movies, then it feels like an attack of like, I don't agree with this. And it makes me feel like I'm not a part of the same thing, which I think is the one is the one negative thing is when something has an honor energy. My hope for things like this is always that here's this thing, maybe it will people will give it will take a chance on stuff that they wouldn't normally take a chance on. There's this movie that is considered by people that you may love or respect that is the best, in quotes. And maybe it'll let you find something. But I think a lot of people take to it in this with this energy of if it aligns with you, that oh I've been validated, anyone who disagrees is wrong. But the the way that we take in cinema art in any way, defining the list is so difficult. Like I love a list, but calling a list the best doesn't make sense unless it's of a personal thing, in my opinion. And so it's, it's it does kind of suck because if I would never make this movie, but I, I see things within it that really appeal to me. And especially when it's not something I'd want to make. I, I think I look to the things of why it works for me that I think affect me. I think I'm a, a pretty emotional movie person. So if, if you catch me in your in your aura emotionally, typically, I'm I'm bound to to make it work. But we all take things in so differently. And this sounds like such a centrist opinion, but I think it is kind of that. Like it sort of sucks to be on one side if, if you're like, I didn't like this. I think the assumption could be you're being a contrarian. But if someone said, I love this thing, it also sounds like, well, they're being pretentious because it is universally beloved. And so it's like a, it's like a lose, lose type of weird thing. Well, but it's not universally beloved. I think you have to be careful about that. But I mean, in the context of like the conversation around it is that it's the best. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It has been determined by this prestigious. And so I, it can feel like that, especially when you're like a teenager trying to dictate your taste, you see this list you're like, well, I, I should pull stuff from this. But I
1: do want to amplify or, or echo something Connor said, this is not a movie of how real people behave. And that, that's actually something for me. It's not my kind of cinema. It's why Tarantino's movies are not my favorites, because Sharon Tate was murdered. Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio did not save Sharon Tate. Hitler went on to kill six million Jews. They did not kill Hitler in a theater. Now, I'm not saying that cinema can't do that. Of course it can. And Tarantino has a thesis. But it's also why, as much as I love Godard. Goddard had this thesis in the 1960s that was moving more and more towards Maoist communism. And I was like, but people aren't like this. This isn't the way the world is. And when I was watching Gene Dealman, I was like, well, this is a filmmaker's thesis and what this filmmaker is doing, and it's what Lars von Trier does. It's what Godard does. One of the reasons I love Fassbender, why he's my number four filmmaker, is I actually think he traffics in how people really are. I don't actually think he's ever trying to prove a thesis of existence. Now, I think Jean Dielman is really important because I think probably Chantel Ackerman was, I need to make it this way to get a dialogue going on the life of women, on the life of mothers, on the life of wives, on how women are viewed by society. I think that's all really important. But I thought, Connor, you were talking about getting a hobby. I was like, this isn't fair to her because Chantel Ackerman is saying this woman is not intelligent enough and not emotionally resourceful enough to have a friend. This woman is somehow so trapped in by her society and the expectations and this, that, and the other, that she's not going to have a boyfriend, that she's not going to get a job during the day, that she's not going to go out and meet people.
2: To me, it feels like the movie doesn't quite establish that well enough to feel that way. Like this potato dropping scene, which I don't think happens, but the emphasis for that being a big moment is that, oh, oh crap, like that's a potato. They got to eat the potatoes, but- the kid eats, he, there's all these leftovers. <laughs> like, like if there, there needs to be a pressure there. You know what I mean? Like, that's not like false narrative either, I don't think. If the food was that precious, then why is the kid like not eating half of his food? It doesn't really matter.
0: I love lists. And I think it's such a cool opportunity to gauge different people's taste and like hopefully find new things within it. Because there's a lot of stuff on the 2022 update I've never heard of. Which seems crazy because all I do is take in movies. And so when there's new stuff, you're like, oh, this is exciting. The hardest thing for things like this for me is, I think it's important in my mindset that when you when a list like this comes out, because I think it rules. I love that there's two, that there's a critical and a filmmaker one. And I love that there's overlap because I think we've weirdly, the last 10 plus years of like a blockbuster climate has really turned people against critics Or if a movie is rated bad by a critic, it's because they're idiots, they're pretentious, they only like this. But I think so often, it's just, it's taste. It's the same thing we're having here. Someone else is not aligning, and they want something different out of a movie that it's not giving them. And that's not a bad thing. It's just because they have a platform to vocalize it, and their rating affects a number, it means something more.
2: I think if critics wanted to dissuade that narrative, they could have voted a little different. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, they could have done a lot of things to be like, hey guys, we're fine. I love finding critics that align in my realm of taste because it turns you on to stuff or finding people that I love how they write even if I don't agree with their tastes because I think their inputs on things are so interesting. My hope with all these things and it feels like such a, like a middle ground to take, but I think the conversations it inspires is the coolest thing, even if it is arguments because Agreed. the yeah. best part of, of that is is these because this is a conversation. We're not crapping on each other because we take in stuff differently. And that's why the four of us work. That's why like communities work. Cause if it was just a universal agreement, that's so boring. Yeah, it was great. Cool. You always thought it was great too. That rules. It's so much more interesting to kind of have a, a, a process behind. It. I think we're in danger
1: of losing that. One of the great things about Gene Dealman being number one is exactly what you're saying. It let people to discuss cinema, but the problem is that you have to have such a respect for other people that you're, you're not threatened by their other points of view and you wanna listen, you're like, oh, this is a dynamic conversation. I disagree with you, but that's interesting. And I think we're in danger of losing that in this current moment. Either everyone wants to all agree or everyone could get threatened disagreeing or everyone's worried that if they disagree, they're gonna look like an idiot. And I think that we have to have an ability for people to say, I loved Gene Dealman, I was in the middle, I disliked it, here's why, and you respect them. Great, okay, I get it, fine. And they're not worried about how everyone's going to perceive them.
2: I've been personally very self-conscious the <laughs> last like year or so totally. about my personal taste.
0: Yeah, the internet's kind of made that a thing that sucks. Like it it makes you feel bad for the things that you love as if you have to cater them to be like, well, but I love this too. It makes it insincere. And it is
2: it is easy to then create a sort of shell around yourself of like, well, all these people are just blah, 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 blah. And I do that on the show a little bit to like as a bit just because it's it's a, it's a fun persona to be, like, really mad. I pr- I'm probably, like, louder and yell more on this show than I do, like, in real life. Yeah. Well, know? but
1: I actually think it's funny, Connor. I think you have a, a misalignment in your self-perception because you're actually a pretty Catholic, lowercase c person with films. You're pretty— accepting and tolerant of everyone's taste.
2: i think so too but i just think i'm a little more boisterous on the cast than i am outside of it we probably all are i think edwin is edwin yeah, all the way down Yeah, <laughs> me um what can you do about the things about the like elitism thing like the more i think about it the more i'm just like at the end of the day this is everybody else's problems do i think that people could be less smug about certain things probably almost definitely but i also think that like Getting sort of so caught up in, oh, well, these people really liked this movie, and I didn't.
1: I think that, that filmmakers and critics also— I don't know if you guys think about this, how what you do and what you say, it actually means things to other people that you're totally unaware of. And people can see you in a way that you can't see yourself. And I think the thing about the sight and sound poll is I kind of chuckled when Vertigo <laughs> was number one. I love Vertigo. But I think it spoke more to the fact that a lot of film people are obsessive and feel very lonely and feel that they can't make relationships work. And so it's not (laughs) a surprise that Vertigo would be their favorite film because they, like Alfred Hitchcock, would make an ode to being stuck in a loop of their nature that prevents them from engaging in fulfilling long-term relationships. But that doesn't make Vertigo the best movie ever made. It makes Vertigo a movie that film critics and filmmakers relate to because of their natures. And I think also Gene Dealman, that doesn't make Gene Dealman the best movie. It talks about filmmakers and film critics feeling that they're at a very fragile moment in cinema where they want to... Uh, reaffirm feminist filmmaking, which often hasn't had a voice at the table. They want to affirm Chantal Ackerman and a female perspective in a, dom- a male-dominated list. I think these are all important things to contextualize about why Gene Dielman has risen to the top. But it says something about where we're at and the dialogue we feel we have to have in this moment. It's not really an empirical statement about anything other than where the dialogue needs to be. And when you think about it that way, you're like, yeah, hell yeah, Gene Dielman should be up there. We got to talk about this, about female filmmakers and minority filmmakers and people who haven't had a voice at the table in 100 years of male-dominated sight and sound poll lists.
2: And another thing about Gene Dielman, she drops a brush, and that's supposed to be like a big deal. (laughs) She drops a spoon. She just immediately recleans it.
0: It's like who cares? I think you're on a very good thing there, Craig. I think the worldview of the times when these are voted is so important because the conversations around this are important for us to have, but it's also important to like, I think, listen to the people that have made this happen. This expansion in the voting pool, there's a reason this is hit that I think you're alluding to in in terms of taste and also what's important to people and what they're experiencing and thinking about. And so those conversations now, all the writing and, and conversations that'll come out of this poll New filmmakers and old filmmakers alike, I think it's so important and helps us build and grow as cinema becomes what it becomes in the years ahead. Absolutely. And
1: contextualized in that sense, it makes all the sense in the world why we have to have Gene Dealman be number one right now. Ah,
3: oh, come on! We have to
1: have a conversation about a hundred years of sort of white, male-dominated cinema when there are all these voices who probably don't relate to that in the same way that some people don't relate to Gene Dealman who are like, hey, I've got a different way of seeing the world. And I would love to have my voice in there so that I can have something I can show people like me so we can say there's our voice and we can have an empathy machine for us. I think that's very, very important and can't be ignored. Now let's see
0: how many women um, Edwin has on his list. Top 10 lists, Daniel. I'll give my, so I, I have thought about this for a week and I couldn't put them in an order. So I have the 10, I put them in order by release date. In talking about these lists, the one thing I forgot to mention too is the context of favorites and best. And so I tried to find a middle ground to what I would have submitted in terms of the movies that changed my viewpoint on movies as I've grown up, if that makes sense. Movies that like shattered sort of what I thought movies could be and and helped me grow as a filmmaker. Because I'm not going to say some of my favorites on here, which I think is going to alarm. Maybe just Edwin. So from uh, earliest release to newest release, I did David Lean's Brief Encounter from 1945. Mm. I did Jacques Tati's Playtime from 1967, which shattered my world of the, the visuals. Because I, I, I was debating between that and, and Chapman. And I think I, I returned to that the most. Chaplin, Daniel? It sounded like you said Chapman. Oh, sorry, cha- Chaplin, Chaplin, yeah. I did Victor, I think it's pronounced Orisa's Spirit of the Beehive. I did Juzo Atami's Tampopo, which was my big intro into like oddities, like romance and oddity being sincere in its delivery. Uh, I did James L. Brooks' Broadcast News from 1987. I did John Woo's Hard Boiled from 92, which changed my world when I saw it on VHS. I did Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure from 97, which I still think is one of the darkest interpretations of the evil of people. I did um, Koryeda's Afterlife from 98, which in the realm of religion and and faith and the idea of afterlife is my favorite interpretation of things in that world. Um, I did Christmas American Movie, which I think is one of the funniest and most inspiring and heartbreaking pieces of coming of age and of art and the the pursuit of it. And I had to include what I think was my favorite thing from the last, which was Bong Joon-ho's Parasite as the th- the thing that in the last 20 years has like shifted my brain again of, of sort of filmmaking, but also a movie that I thought should win everything actually winning, where my taste aligned in those regards. So that'd be, that would be my top 10. Girl, that's a great conversation starter, top 10.
3: Okay. So I didn't do a list. It's all in my head. Uh, first one, Sam Peckinpah's Pat Gary and Billy the Kid, blew my mind on the Western world, how I could make it more violent and gruesome, and a kick-ass soundtrack. Second, uh, Jaws, Spielberg, blew me away with uh, Spielberg. Third, Irwin Allen's production of The Poseidon Adventure, blew me away with his action pictures. Fourth, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate. One, cinematography, visual location, great score, and I have a poster for that. Five, uh, Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, How He Blew Up the 80s, and a great soundtrack. Six, another Spielberg movie. 1941, 41, something Whoa. you won't show. You just blew Connor
1: out of his apartment.
3: <laughs> I'm going to throw up. Sergio Leone's uh, for a few dollars more, the best in the dollar trilogy. Eighth is uh, Jackie Chan's police story. Introduce me to the Kung Fu world and other great Hong Kong stars. Ninth is. Um, sure what these done.
0: Igmar Bergman's persona. No.
3: American Graffiti. That's
0: a a damn good call. That was almost on my Tenth.
3: The tenth one. The big one. Is, um... Is, um... I want to say it's kind of... So big.
0: Mamma mia.
3: Brainstorm. There, I said it. Whoa! True to form. Something no one will ever show up because they're too scared. Who directed Brainstorm? That's Trumbull, right? Yes, yeah, right, Douglas Trumbull. That's right. One of the that's most a great, beautiful, that's a great st- list, dude. That's a conversation yeah. starter right there. So show this movie. I like when
0: it switches aspect ratios.
2: Connor, I was originally going to make three lists, <laughs> not not a joke. One from my heart, one from my mind, one from my soul. I was really thinking about this a lot. I was troubled, I was I was having sleepless nights, tossing and turning about it. And um, I realized pretty quickly, I think you, Daniel, you tried to do a synthesis of heart and mind in a way. And I realized that those lists were almost exactly the same and they're literally the movies that you hear me talk about every week. You can actually go to tinyurl.com slash Connor's Favorite Films. And see my letterbox list of my favorite movies. I organize in clumps. And so some movies that are at the top. Like Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are at the very top. They're And to me they're like tied for first. But if I was to separate them out. They would still also be 1 and 2. Whereas opposed to after that is Raiders and Temple of Doom. Uh, which are my in my two slot. But if I were to separate them out, Temple of Doom would be much further down as much as I uh, do adore that movie. But I really thought about it. And I, I was thinking about how Wes Anderson sent 10 foodies from France because he was living in France while he got it. And I was like, you know what? I love that energy. I think in my soul, this is the kind of energy. I think if I was brave enough, this is the list I would submit. Just because... The other list, like, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Halloween, boring. But true to form, eight to nine of these movies are on that list. If you go to that URL I said a minute ago, and I'll put in the description, most of these movies are on that list. And I say eight to nine because I don't have a number 10. So I'm using a randomizer. The Devil Wears Prada is my number 10. So that could have been, I'd used that randomizer before, and it gave me Brazil. And so if that had been. But my actual list here, number nine Craig Denny's The Astrologer, a modern-day Citizen Kane meets Nightmare Alley. Number eight, Bill and John Porter's Christie, Santa's First Female Reindeer, a musical odyssey spectacle for the whole family. Oh, he did it. Number seven, Faulkner, Duran, and Joseph Spookies. It was a trio. Legendary holiday favorite. Number six, Mark Regens After Last Season, a mind bending journey into the mind of a killer. Dr. Ray Ramaya's Ryan's babe at number five, a hilarious adventure about a man with no discernible qualities. Number four, people's sexiest man of the year for the last 10 years running Neil Breen's fateful findings. Number three, you knew this was coming. It's Mr. Gary Orono's The Great Bikini Off-Road Adventure. Then uh, 1 and 2 are just actually Evil Dead 1 and 2 in the off chance that I could somehow get them like catapulted onto the actual list.
0: Evil Dead 2 was a contender for mine, I'll be honest. That was life-changing. To back Connor's decisions here, there is no pretension. It is pure artistry, those decisions, because they are the most true-to-form things I've ever heard Connor speak. They're full sincerity. I think that's important to note. Ryan's babe is... A minor proof of miracles. When Connor chose
1: Ryan's Babe uh, and we screened it at the secret movie club theater, I was looking forward to it because I love those kinds of movies. But I'd never seen anything like Ryan's Babe. People need to see Ryan's Babe. There's,
2: these are conversation starters. The only real bid on there is the Great Bikini Off Road Adventure, which which is which is which is just bad. It's just a titty movie. It's <laughs> it's terrible. Don't don't watch In it. In the
0: realm of relationships, you set up the perfect sort of circle for yourself to be like, oh, we should watch this movie you know, you've never seen it will never be an option. It'll be, you've never seen it. And we're going to experience it together and it's going to be a core memory. My top 10 has basically been my top 10 for
1: most of my adult life. I noticed that only two titles changed from where it was maybe 20 years ago. In no real specific order, I love all these movies. Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, I've said it many times. That's my, if the aliens came and they said, what is cinema and I could only hand them one movie, it would be that movie. I used to say Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game, which is still a movie I love. But as I've gotten older, I actually, the one I, is Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion. And I think maybe it's just my nature because I actually find Rules of the Game is a very intense ultimately bleak look. Uh, Grand Illusion is, it puts you through the ringer, but it comes out saying yes. I actually ultimately find Grand Illusion to be very affirming, and I find that that's my nature as I get older. Stanley Kubrick's 2001, Federico Fellini's eight and a half, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. This is a bit of a cheat, but I love Wong kar love trilogy which is Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love in 2046. They all have reoccurring characters. The first movie is all the loves you have before the love of your life. The second movie is the love of your life. And the third movie is all the loves you have after the love of your life. And I think put together, they're sort of greater than the sum of their parts. If you said, no, that's a cheat, then I would tell you, okay, fine. Days of Being Wild. Then also Satyajit Ray's Apu trilogy. And that's um, Pather Panchali, uh, Aparagito, and The World of Apu. But if you said pick one, then I would pick Aparagito, the second movie, which is about Apu in Calcutta from his father's death through his mother's death, and yet he comes out saying yes, and those are the kinds of movies I love. Palin Pressburger's Black Narcissus, Milos Forman's Loves of a Blonde, and then here's the interesting thing. My number 10 was always Stan Brakhage's Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes, which is a 30-minute movie he made in a morgue in Pittsburgh of autopsies. And you have to sit and watch autopsies for 30 minutes. And, you know, I am someone who thinks about death a lot, but not in that way that a lot of people think about death. I don't know. This is a conversation for another time. It's something I think you need to deal with in life. Maybe because I'm in denial, I don't know. It's not something that terrifies me like other people. Maybe because I do believe in an afterlife. I actually believe that there's a lot more than this. But I do think thinking about death and your inevitable death is something that you do need to think about because I do think it organizes and orders how you see the world. And watching Stan brackets The Act of Seeing with One's Own Eyes is, has made me do that. Uh, you have to be willing to see autopsy footage. If you're not willing to see autopsy footage, do not watch that movie. However, it's a short film. And I realize that Sight and Sound might be like, actually, that's a 30-minute movie. So if I had to swap that out, I would put on Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin because I still think to this day that we have not fully explored everything that film editing can be. I think film editing is the closest we get to dreams and thought and how our brains work in a really interesting way. And I think when you watch Battleship Potemkin, it was one of the first movies where if you were a filmmaker, you were like, oh, I can do that. (laughs) I can edit that way. And then it would blow your mind. Well, now I'm going to explore all this and all the movies after that, that explored editing, which is an art that I love and I'm obsessed with. I just have to put Battleship Potemkin. So there you go. There are top 10 lists in 2023 as a result of Sight and Sound. If we're doing this in 10 years, we'll see where we are. As always, I want to thank everybody who was on this podcast. You can find out everything we're doing at uh, secretmovieclub.com. Go to eventbrite.com. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Come tonight to see the end of the Spike Jones series. We'd love to have you tomorrow to see Knife in the Water on 35mm. Uh, next uh, week, come to see uh, Moonlight and uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire on the big screen if you only caught him on the small screens. And then on Thursday, uh, Daniel Ott's birthday movie, a movie I highly recommend everyone see. I love this movie. Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. And it will set you up for our podcast on non-James Bond spy movies. That is it. Thank you, guys. And and does anyone want to do a plug since this time we did our top tens? Does anybody have a plug?
2: I'll just say uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash NerdHala.
3: If your people are interested in looking for scripts, Blu-rays, posters, and our lobby cards, one sheets. Come check us out at Hollywood Book and Poster in Burbank, California.
1: I just want to thank, as always, our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor lloyd Cruz, uh, who edits <laughs> and sometimes suffers through the uh, raw footage and always turns it into an eminently listenable 30 to 60 minutes. So thank you, Connor. That's it. Secret Movie Club Podcast 136. <laughs> Continuing with the Gene dealman trend, we're going to be discussing Jackass and the four Jackass movies, which, believe it or not, come out out of a long tradition of uh, Chaplin, Keaton, Laurel, and Hardy, uh, and and a bunch of other things. And then we're going to talk about how low art can become high art, the low art, high art distinction. Hopefully, maybe an interesting companion to the podcast we just did. Uh, But that'll be next week. Alright, guys. Have a great week.
0: See you next week. Bye-bye. I love you. Bye, everyone. Goodbye, citizens.